0: So we're going to, we're going to start this series, uh, which I think will take two or three weeks. I don't know how long, but I want to take a fresh look at the gospel. And it could sound like this is just sort of out of left field or another topic, but I do think it relates very dramatically to what we've been talking about as far as the glory of God, what we've been talking about. And we've had a few conversations in some of the smaller groups about forgiveness and the nature of that. Uh, even back to our position as children in relationship to this. And so, uh, you guys know me, and uh, I know you'll have some mercy on on an introductory kind of uh, thing. Uh What exactly do we believe to be the good news of our faith? And most of you probably know that the word gospel uh, really means good news. So I'm going to do a little bit of looking into the history of the word. It's not super complicated, but... But uh, what is the good news of our faith? That's what we're going to look at so the the primary Greek word is euangelion. sometimes it's spelled with an n instead of two g's. I'm not really sure why. The older references that I looked at like vines uh they had it spelled differently. This is the way most of the lexicons the modern lexicons, and in the Greek, it does have two gammas, so that's probably why they put it in there but it's uh Unlike some of the word studies that we've done, virtually every time you get the word gospel, or depending on the translation, good news, you're going to run into this word, uagelion, as a noun. And so as a noun, uh, it, it originally denoted a reward for good tidings. And the place that we could see that is in the Septuagint. And uh, I'll just read it real quickly. It's kind of a, kind of a rough story. But it does illustrate the use of the word. So you know the Septuagint, that LXX thing, is the means seventy. That's the Greek version of the Old Testament. And so where we get some Greek parallels is where it pulls it from when it's trying to speak uh, in Old Testament Hebrew language. So the word that Uagelion is substituted for in the Greek translation is the word Besorah, and that is the word that means the, re- the reward of good news. So, the story in 2 Samuel 5 starts in verse 10, and it says this, As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress. This is David talking, and this is not a fun story. As the Lord lives, who has redeemed my life from all distress, when one told me, saying, Behold, Saul is dead, and thought he was bringing good news. Now, that's not the word. That's the word Barah thought he was bringing good news, I seized him and killed him in Ziklag, which was the reward I gave him for his news. So the the reward I gave him for his news is that word. So that's the history of it. Strange. Strange. Strange that, that that is one of the only instances in the Old Testament where that word is used. It's not used very often. It's used two or three times in the discussion about this. There are other uh, words where people are are admonished by saying, do you think there's going to be a reward for that good news or a reward for that good tiding or a reward for that report? So there's nothing wrong with the word. It's just a word. It just means things, but it just happened to be kind of a rough story to illustrate it. So by the time uh, Second Temple Judaism came along and by the time that that the New Testament especially came into being, the concept of the reward fell out of use with the word. And eugeleon just meant the good news in in whatever form that good news came. And it was used also in in, in some secular stuff, uh, secular Greek and so on and so forth. So that's the idea of the reward being dropped and it, it became synonymous for the good news. And that's how it's used almost exclusively in the New Testament as good news. Now, we... Uh, and it depends on the translation you use, whether it says good news or whether it says gospel. And so as an introduction, what I want us to understand is that the word gospel, uh, is, it's a word that is wrapped up in our Christianity. It's, it's, uh, it's wrapped up in our faith. And so this is the history. As a verb, as a verb, Uagelizo is used to bring or declare good news, and it retains the meaning of kind of the reward or the bring and that. So it's translated variously as declare, preach, announce, or proclaim, and sometimes associated with the other English translation, which is the word gospel, or sometimes it's just uh, tidings or good news or something along those lines. Okay? Makes sense? So it's not a super complicated word in the Greek, and it has its roots in the, in the Old Testament. Uh, for that reward idea. Now, here's the biblical New Testament usage that I want us to understand, because this is what I think we're uh, we're going to have to look at a little bit to see if we're how we think about it and how we're using it. So, the earliest chronological use in the uh, of the word gospel in the New Testament is in the Gospels, and this is where Gabriel appears to Zechariah and says, I'm, I've brought you this good news, or I've brought you this good tidings. And most translations don't translate that with the word English word gospel. They do translate it with good news or good tidings. But this is the first time chronologically in the story of Jesus that euangelion is used, and it generally means, or it's translated good tidings. And that's there in Luke. If you read through the whole story, you remember that that uh, that uh, Zechariah was in ministering, and uh, the angel of the Lord appeared next to him, and he was frightened, and he said, don't be afraid. And he was announcing the birth of John the Baptist, who was going to be a forerunner. And he said, this is the good news I'm bringing. So that's how the word's used there. All right, later, and, and in throughout the Scripture, this word is used to affirm uh, Jesus preaching the gospel, or preaching the good tidings, or preaching the good news. So let me read that one to you real quick. Um, Matthew eleven, I didn't mark that one. Sorry. So Matthew, uh, yeah, eleven five. Um, so this is the, the the situation where John's disciples came to Jesus when John was in prison, and said, you know, John says, are you the one, or should we wait for another? And um, he says, go and report to John. This is in verse four. Jesus answered and said to them, go and report to John what you hear and what you see the blind receive light and the lame walk and lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear the dead are raised and the poor have the gospel preached to them and blessed is he who does not take offense in me and so the nuance begins to shift a little bit in the use of the word in the gospels because there's a lot uh, about five other places where it talks about Jesus preaching the gospel he went around preaching the, the good news preaching the good tidings, preaching the gospel in that way. And so this this, uh, is the next sort of phase of the use of the word. As we move forward, uh, there's two elements that are particular to Paul about this and the use of this word. And then Paul is the one that uses it all, but almost one other time, I think. In a minute, we're going to see that, uh, I I believe that uh, Eugelion is used by the angel in Revelation that's declaring the gospel, uh, the eternal gospel. We'll see that in just a minute. But uh, so this is probably the quintessential use that we could pull thought out of or a definition out of, and it's in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So let me jump over here. So 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Uh, So Paul says this, and this is an important one. I'm going to go ahead and read the whole the whole scripture here. Um, So it says, beginning in in verse 1, it says, Now I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached to you. And that's the Evangelion word. Which also you received and which also you stand, by which you are saved, if you hold fast the word which I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day, according to the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, and then to the twelve, and after that he appeared to more than five hundred brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, and then to all the apostles, and last of all, to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. So, the significance of this use of the word in that verse uh, was was driven home for me probably fifteen years ago, I was in a men's retreat uh, at a church that I was going to at the time here in Woodland Park. And um, the church had a Reformed theology background. And uh, we were there, and a couple of guys were teaching it. And one of the elders was was part of that teaching process. And he said, so this is the gospel. He said, nothing else is the gospel. He was pretty emphatic. I thought, wow, this is the gospel. It is the death and Jesus dying for our sins, his death, his resurrection, and his appearances. Nothing else of the gospel. Now, I don't agree with that, but that is a very, very common particular about the word, the gospel. And it influences a lot of Christian culture, a lot of Christian music, a lot of Christian reading. And that's one of the reasons that I want us to think, uh, you know, is that, limiting a definition what the Apostle Paul was trying to get across. Now, I'm not going to have time tonight, nor was it my intention, even if I didn't know we had other stuff going. I wasn't going to try to do all the word studies and dig all this stuff out. There's two or three other scriptures I want to touch base with and read. But I I want you to be thinking about that, because you will have probably heard the gospel represented in that limited way. If uh, if you've ever heard any significant Reformed teacher I was listening to R.C. Spruill a little bit about the gospel in preparation for this stuff. And uh, he said uh, specifically that this is the limits of the gospel. And then he pointed out the fact that uh, there's a lot of things that people call the gospel, a lot of things people talk about it, you know, like God loves you and has a, a plan for your life, that that's telling the gospel or just the story or whatever. So we'll get into that in the next slide a little bit about what these things the implications of how we understand this word. But that is uh, that is one of the words. Now, that wasn't the only way that Paul talked about the gospel though. So Paul further used the gospel to link to all these words. So it was called the gospel of God. Okay? It was also called the gospel of the Son. It was also called the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God it was called the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, the gospel of the glory of God. Then it was applied personally and called the gospel of your salvation. In another place, it's called the gospel of peace. And finally, oh, the gospel of the kingdom. And then finally, uh, there's that angel that declares the eternal gospel. So th- the concept of the gospel uh, and, and you could, you could go back very legitimately, and some translations do, you could go back and you could read that with the idea of good news or good tidings. So it's the good news of your salvation. It's the good news of the son of God. It's the good news of the glory of God. The good news or the eternal good news that the angel's proclaiming. So there's that kind of semantic range. There's that kind of flexibility in the word. Uh, Okay. Last in chronological uses that came up, and when I say last in the development of this word in New Testament thinking, is as it was assigned as a title to the four Gospels. And you might think that was first, but the the Gospels were written later. And so when the uh, Bible was canonized, they were called the Gospel of Matthew, the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Luke, and the Gospel of John. And that has also got an influence over our modern thoughts about the word and our use about it, because those are the record of Jesus' life. And they're a record of certainly more than just him dying for our sins, right? And raising from the dead and and appearing in a resurrected form. So almost any story, and we'll get to that in just a second, but almost anybody talking about Jesus, telling a story about Jesus, or hearing a story about Jesus at some point or another, people will call that the gospel or sharing the gospel or something along those lines. So I just want you to see the background. Now, contemporary uses, probably the most common one, I would think, the most, the one that has the most common understanding is when we use it as a title for the gospels today. Because whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or you barely know anything about it, most everybody's heard about the gospel of John or the gospel of Matthew or they get published in in little book form and you know all that kind of stuff. So that's probably one of the most common contemporary uses for the word gospel. Almost any form of preaching or telling a story with Jesus, especially with the goal of conversion, is usually somebody is going to call that sharing the gospel, talking about the gospel, teaching the gospel, or something along those lines. Now, uh, Romans Road could be that if you go back to those days, you know, with a track and everything. Kurt Cameron's, uh, that's the master's way of evangelism or something like that. Is that what that's causing by now? Something like that. Anyway, the whole idea, if you've ever told a lie, you're a liar. That's the good news. <laughs> oh boy. You slip up once, you're identified forever. It eventually gets to the idea of Jesus cleansing you. But you see how, how this can distort the, the simple, basic idea of evangelion, which is good news. Good news. So, also the, the God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. I've heard that talked about as the gospel. Um, there's, uh, you know, evangelism, explosion, has a whole bunch of ways. All that is stuff we talk about being the gospel. You could name it. Now, uh, R.C. Sproul, not now, because he passed away, and I'm sure he understands fully, better than I do. So he probably wouldn't hold the exact same view uh, of, of the gospel being utterly limited to the particulars listed by Paul of the death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus. But uh, that is something that is still a very big feature of Reformed uh, theology. And you're going to get Reformed theology in, you're going to get this aspect of Reformed theology certainly in every Presbyterian or Baptist church that you're in, you're, uh, are you here, or you hear, or that they publish any literature and it carries over, even though there's more of an Armenian root. Uh, this is going to carry over to Pentecostal, Paulinist churches, a lot of places like that. There's there's the concept of the gospel speaking particularly to these three items: the death, the resurrection, and the ascension of Jesus. And there's some merit to that because I mean, Paul, you know, he talked about that. But uh, it does present some problems and some limits in our understanding. And then lastly, this is one that I hear a bunch, and this, this is kind of troubling to me because of something I'll say in a minute. You hear the gospel shared as if it is synonymous with the plan of salvation. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, so if you're going to share the gospel with somebody, you're going to share the plan of salvation. Now, depending on your theology, this could include things like the necessity of confession, or encouraging people to confess their sins. It could include repentance. It could include praying the sinner's prayer. And it almost always includes the promise of heaven or the threat of hell. And so again, it's easy for these concepts to co-opt the word gospel because the gospel doesn't mean anything except what we assign to it as a Christian and a religious situation. But if you go back to the fundamental meaning of good news, some of these things are good news and some are not. <laughs> some don't feel very good and they don't feel very newsworthy. And so I think that's why I want us to, to look at it a little bit differently. Does it make sense? Okay. All right. Now, why look at our concept of the gospel with fresh eyes? Um, sometimes I have people ask me, so where do you come up with ideas for sermons? You know, uh, well, I don't know. I, I would like to think there are more in ideas. I try to spend some time with the Lord and seek it out. But I also listen to my own heart and try to feel where we're going as a people and where we could go as a people and what stands perhaps in the way of us going from here to there. And so that leads to some discussions that sometimes are pretty fantastic and sometimes are challenging. Is there anything missing or wrong with these common ways that we think of and use the gospel today? Let me go back to them just again. So is there anything wrong with using the word gospel as part of the title for Matthew's story about Jesus. No, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. That's the gospel of Matthew, the story of Jesus. Mark is a different story. No, no, I think I, I, I'll, I'll give all four of the guys a pass on that one. All right. Is there anything missing or wrong or misleading about uh, about the uh, idea of just any form of talking about Jesus or talking about... Uh, Anything like that. And Mark, I'm going to have to hold the question just a little bit. We'll talk about it only because of everything else that went on. We're running a little short on time. But I'll, I'll, I want to get it, and we'll get it out for everybody. Well, I think there is, because one of the things that troubles me about, about our, our contemporary Western Christianity is that we build up structures and language and theology that puts the control of the ideas in our hands. And mostly as a pastor, you won't admit that, because how else do you do it, you know? Uh, but but this is one of those things. If we take the liberty of saying that anything we conceive of is the good news, there's a real chance it's going to obscure what someone else thinks the good news is. And that might not be such a bad deal if it's just me and Ronnie having a disagreement about what the good news is, but the part that is behind this series, that's behind my concern for it, and what I want to get to, is that I think that these things, like the plan of redemption and salvation, looks a very particular way to someone very important, and that is God Himself. It's the Father. And so not every idea that I had when I rolled out of Bible college, I realized after several years, was one that God had. Not every interpretation of Scripture was what the Scripture actually says. And so that's going to be a reality. And And it requires humility, and it requires study, and it requires fellowship. It requires realizing that I know in part and that you know in part and that that means we need one another for this stuff. But ultimately, and this is why I think Jesus said, you search the scripture thinking and then you find life. And there that which testify of me, but you refuse to come to me and receive life. I think we need to go to him because there's a really particular verse in Matthew. And it says, no one knows the son except the father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom He's willing to reveal it. So the perfect knowledge of God is a very exclusive club. And it really isn't open for just every random interpretation or private interpretation that man has, including mine. And so I think the second issue does create a a, a hole. And the hole is that you can have things that are almost diametrically opposed from one another. Call them the gospel and, and it, it's just incredibly confusing and stands in the way, perhaps, of what the gospel really is, what the good news really is. The third one down here, the limitations of these particulars, I recognize a value in that, but we'll see in just a minute why it leaves so much out of who Jesus is and who the Father sent him to be. Okay? And then the last one is synonymous with the plan of salvation uh again this is one of those that thrust it right back in our hands denominationally theologically and all of a sudden uh it takes you know it takes dynamite to get us to see something a different way okay so let's um, so if we see this as the plan of redemption or the story of Jesus here's one of the problems of that you can believe the story And you can believe the plan without it being relational. You understand what I'm saying? There's a lot of people that agree with whatever their denominational or theological position is, and it doesn't produce a relationship. Unless the plan requires it, yeah. The second is, with either of these concepts, Jesus, this is probably the one that troubles me the most because it denies us the greatest revelation, the greatest relational revelation, is that in either of these concepts, Jesus is constantly at the risk of only being a part of the gospel. Now, in fairness, like good reformed teachers say, no, Jesus is the whole of the gospel, but then they limit it to just those things surrounding the cross with his death, resurrection, and so on. And they don't take into account the fact that he himself is the good news that was announced at at the first Christmas. He was that good news, the good news of glad tidings. For unto us, a child is born, Isaiah says. He is the good news. Not the story about him. The story about him is fantastic. Not just what he did. What he did, you'll see in a second, turns our mind away from what he's doing today, right now. Okay, if we limit this to the events of the cross, then what do we do and what do we make of Jesus as the creator? Yeah, not important. We're limiting it. What about his incarnation? Now, some would say, well, that's included because he couldn't have died if he wasn't incarnate. But you, if you heard me teach for a while you know that I believe that we have a very low view of the incarnation of Jesus. The thought that he just took on a body so he could die or so he could be seen by the people around the Judean region. Yeah. That leads to what do we do about his bodily ascension? If you ask the majority of Christians, does Jesus have the same body that the disciples saw when he walked through the wall after his resurrection, right now, some would say, uh, yeah, because they would remember that the story of his ascension was that he went up in bodily form and they watched him go behind the clouds. And then the angels said, this same Jesus is coming back. The way he left. But then if you say, does God have a body? Then they screw up their face and they have a hard time with the answer because you don't know. Because we don't take this seriously, and we end up losing really the core of the good news. Then we also, that goes to the point of what's his current ministry, his present ministry? You know, what is he doing right now for us? Is he standing off at a distance someplace? Or is he walking with us like we talked about, Al, in the midst of all the lockdowns, in the midst of the COVID? If we miss this point, if we ignore His ascension as a bodily individual, we're going to miss a bunch. And then lastly, what about that physical body literally as part of the triune Godhead? That blows my mind. I believe it, but I don't know how to talk about it. I don't know how to think about it. I don't know how to do anything about it. But the implications as we move through the next couple of weeks, this is something we're going to hit pretty hard. Who are we as Christians? Who are we being transformed into? Or what did we lose in the fall that we have regained in Christ? This is where we find the answer to that. We're not just a bunch of people who have been improved. We have a, a human brother, the firstborn from among the dead, that has, I know this is hard to talk about, and there are not even really words for it, has in a sense permanently altered the human presence by his inclusion in them and permanently altered the nature of the Godhead by his presence in them. And you won't find that discussed in very many theology books. And I grant you it's not that easy. Some things are not particularly made to be understood. They're made to be believed and experienced. And this is one of those things. So that's why limiting this just to the work of the cross, as spectacular as that is, I think has some holes and it creates some problems in our theology. And lastly, believing the story or conforming to the, to the plan of salvation puts us in a position to have an entirely different goal than what Jesus said the goal of eternal life is, which is knowing God and knowing Jesus whom He sent. And I think this is a huge deal, because as a pastor, not so much with you guys, uh, because we've worked through some of this stuff, but with a lot of people I meet and talk to, and a lot of other pastors I meet and talk to, it never dawns on them, or at least not very frequently that the goal of eternal life is not living a long time in heaven. Eternal life is knowing God and knowing Jesus, who he sent, which is the Incarnate One. Knowing him, having him dwell in us, having us dwell in him. Jesus said, in that day you'll know. Very simple statement. I wish he'd elaborated a little more. And that day you'll know that I'm in my Father, you're in me, and I'm in you. This is something that the church struggles for lack of belief of, lack of knowledge of. So anyway, here are some more issues. God's motives, if the gospel is just the story about Jesus or just the work of the cross, God's motives are given very, very little value. In the gospel, and that is why you can have a bunch of people who quote believe in the gospel, but are pretty much clueless that the Father loves them. And we're going to study in depth uh, John three sixteen. I was shocked by it about three weeks ago. I looked at it, never looked at it. I was looking at it with with uh, I, I just hadn't dug into it. It's so simple. I mean, you know it. Everybody's known it since they were a little kid. You know, what it says in there, literally in the language, is amazing, and it describes the motive of God and who the motive of God was aimed at, and why it was aimed at those people. And the motive is for God so loved. Love is an intrinsic part of the good news. And you don't hear very much about it because we create that kind of separation. The next one is that our security or our insecurity comes from Perceived agreement or alignment with the story or the plan rather than from our union with God. And I hadn't seen it until I started thinking about the gospel. The reason our union with God is such a, a, a vague mystery to us is because we haven't, we haven't aligned with the person of Jesus Christ we haven't aligned with the heart of the Father that sent the person of Jesus Christ. We have aligned with the story. We have agreed with the story. And I'm all for agreeing with the story, but that doesn't, doesn't illustrate union in our lives. And lastly, uh, the story of Jesus concept of the, of the gospel, as true as it is, even as it is in the title of the gospels, the story of Jesus leaves open for us to just be people that believe it. But we don't see ourselves as part of it. We read the story of Jesus. We hear the story of Jesus reported. We think about it as something that was 2,000 years ago. We we memorize the stories. We say, "I, I, I have my favorite part of the story. I love the woman at the well, or I love the woman caught in adultery, or I love when he dealt with Nicodemus. But it's still a story. And the thing you generally do with a story is stay on the outside of it and enjoy it. What the gospel is designed, what the good news is, is that we are not on the outside of that story. We are on the inside of that story, and we are real-time participants as the story of Jesus and as the good news of Jesus is being declared to our neighbors and the people around the world. So, that's the introduction. We don't have time for for follow-up because of all the good stuff the Lord had going but does that make a little bit of sense as to why it might be worth looking into this in depth? We'll have some time. Excellent. All right. Father, thank you. Open our heart, Lord. Cause us to understand that we have, that we have nothing to lose. We don't have to sacrifice any of the beauty of the story of Jesus. We don't have to retitle the four Gospels. We don't have to do anything like that. But there's more to be had. Of the good news of your heart and your purpose and your son.